Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. guys, it's Anna David here with the After Party Pod. Hi, how are you? As this um, intro is being recorded, I am currently a liquid. I'm melting. Uh, Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the heat wave is over. I'll tell you a secret about this too. I mean, it's, it's not quite a secret, but I'll tell you something weird. I love the heat. Nothing's too hot for me. I like New York summers. I spent the month of August in Spain once because, and where it felt like kind of like walking on the sun, both inside and under the sun. And I liked it. And something about this heat is, is crazy making. And I'm talking the kind of heat where you get in your car and it says 117 degrees and you're not remotely freaked out by that because that's just what it is. I don't know if it's my age. I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is. I'm worried. So if you guys have any explanations or theories or uh, comforting words, please tell me. Um, So my goal lately has been to wear as little clothes as possible. Well, basically to not wear clothes while appearing to be wearing clothes. So I am recording this at home where I am in a nightgown because it's, it's the best clothes free option, which is not nude that I could come up with. And that's pretty much what I've been doing as soon as I get home, find a way to put on no clothes, but have clothes on. And um, so that's weird. Usually I record these in my office. So yeah, that's what's going on with me. Um, Tomorrow I'm going to Alaska, you guys, I'm going to go talk to the kids, the fine young minds at University of Anchorage. Uh huh. Alaska. I haven't been since I was 10. And I went on a cruise there, which was great fun. But my main interest those days was um, playing ping pong. So things have changed since then. Uh, Like I said, I'm terribly excited. So anyway, it'll all be old news by the time you hear this. And so let me talk about my guest. My guest today is Mick Betancourt. Betancourt. B-E-T-A-N-C-O-R-T. You know this if you downloaded this from iTunes or Libsyn, or SoundCloud, or wherever you got it. So he is actually, I I don't mean to be overly dramatic, like pretty much a walking miracle. Uh, This is a guy who had survived one of the more desolate childhoods I've, I've ever heard of. His parents were very young when they had him. His dad died young. Um, I don't want to ruin the story when he tells it, but a lot of chaos, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of abuse. And he's pretty much one of the happiest guys I've ever talked to. And it's not 
fake. So anyway, he's been sober about 12 and a half years. And, you know, as the cliche goes, he's not just talking the talk. He's walking the walk. And he is a very successful comedian. He is also the host of the Mick Betancourt show, which you can get on iTunes, a very popular podcast. And as if that is not enough, he's like a super successful TV writer. He doesn't do the comedy thing there. He writes drama. He's written on um, Chicago Fire. He's written on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. We have a story running on After Party Chat by Danielle Stewart, whom Mick and I talk about a lot in this episode. So when you hear us refer to Danielle, that's who we're talking about. She's faithful After Party Chat listeners, readers, I mean, know that she's one of the main writers for After Party Chat. She's also a previous After Party pod guest. Anyway, she has a piece that we're publishing on why... uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit uh, binge watching is important for women in sobriety who are going through rough times. So uh, that that's about all I can tell you about McBetancourt without ruining all the stuff he's about to tell you himself. He's an incredible guy. Go get his podcast. Go watch his TV shows. Go. Uh, he's so generous. He gives away T-shirts to the listeners of his podcast. We get into that. He's way more generous than I am. Okay, this is McBettencourt. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh, my God. I think my copy has, like, blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? So this podcast may sound a hell of a lot better than the other ones you guys listen to because Mick just t- told me about a new sound engineer that is now, he's hired. I haven't met him, but he's hired. And we're rolling now, I'm assuming. We're totally rolling. We like cash, <laughs> right? I'm in, I'm in. You've already, like, you rolled right into this office by the time I saw you. you I were was making help- breakfast when we met. Yeah. Then you've been cracking Danielle up. Like, what haven't you done here that's casual? I'm I'm hanging drywall at noon. You are? I'm going to revolutionize the whole office. Oh, you're doing that? Yeah, yeah, no. I I hope that you (laughs) are a good, like, interior designer, because I still feel like this needs some stuff. I like your office. This is very cool. Thank you. You have to get work done. It has that vibe to it. Like, we're going to do some work here. Yeah. I I don't go to environments that aren't like that. Which is not that great if you're trying to have fun. You have a butt on you. I just noticed the green butt you have on your wall. It's not my butt. It is the best ad. Have you ever seen a better ad for a workout place? Does that say? Pop Physique. Oh, Pop. We're not sponsored by Pop Physique, and in fact, oh, I is don't... Is like Pop, Pop, like, like some twerk action? Is that what that's about? <laughs> no. That'd be cool. Twerking classes? Why don't they have those? They do. But, like, that's a workout. Like, you know how they made stripping into a workout? Yeah, yeah. That's what that is? No. That's something else. It's the, it's a really, really hard workout that uh, does, doesn't does make your butt look like that, but it, it's supposed to. It could. It could. In it, a perfect world. Yeah. If you did pop physique for 14 years straight. It might look like that. Starting at the time when you're 18. Yeah. Then you'd have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. Listeners, you heard it here first. I don't do I don't do that workout anymore. What are you doing now? I go to this thing called GST that I can't even explain, but it's amazing. You guys, GST Body is the website. It's only in LA and they teach like seven classes ever, like a week. That sounds fascinating. Do you want to do it? What workout do you do? 
I have not worked out, as you can tell, um, Can't tell. in about six weeks because um, I had some family shit happen and I had to slow that roll down. But I love, love, love Barry's Boot Camp. It's probably my favorite workout. Oh, my God. So yeah. you actually are a true masochist, not just the You know why I like it? And, I, and it's not like when, you, when I first heard it, I thought it was going to be like people screaming at you, like a boot camp. He screams. I've done it. Really? Not the one that I go to. Does Barry teach it? No, it's in, um, I guess it would be Van Nuys. It's on Ventura Boulevard, just off of Van Nuys, above a cold stone, which is a very tricky because yeah. you have to walk past the cold yeah, stone. Yeah, that's rough. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes I've actually walked out of the workout and gotten cold stone. That's, that's almost, you know that they have a policy where they'll give you a free shirt if you throw up there. Oh, I didn't know. I had a couple yard sales there. <laughs> where I just had to get off the treadmill. Because you know what? I used to wrestle and box, and I love that type yeah. of really pushing yourself. Yeah. Because I would, if I go to the gym myself now, I just never get there. Yeah. I just won't. Yeah. I, for whatever reason. I'm sure I could, but when it's just this group atmosphere and the music's right and someone, at least the ones that I've gone to, the guy wasn't a maniac. He's like, all right, you could do It's motivation, you know? Yeah. It just feels good. And then when you're done, like, there's that little sense of accomplishment. Like, that was fucking hard, and I didn't quit, you know? Totally. Totally. I love that. Um, but it's when treadmill up to 12, you're going backwards. Oh, fine. It's insane. That's when I'm just, yeah. that's when I quit. I had a, yeah, whatever, <laughs> too much of a tangent, but I had a friend who was getting married. And so I agreed to do it with her for a month to prepare. Uh, we both gained weight. I mean, we were so famished afterwards. First, we'd go and pass out oh, at yeah, class yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. eat everything inside. Sure. That's crazy. That's a great workout, though. Um, okay, so having literally the second you came in and, and, and interrupted me listening to you on um, Paul Gilmartin's amazing podcast, mm, I um, it, it's very surreal to be listening to somebody on this thing <laughs> and then have them pretty much interrupt you. You were on time. I was unprepared with their real self. Very surreal experience. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had that when you interview somebody on your podcast. Sometimes I'll, uh, but that would, you know, it's weird you said that particular podcast because that was, I was in a really, I was in a place where I was listening to Paul's podcast to catch up on, you know, what I was going to listen to. Heard the honesty. Christina Pajinski's podcast, particularly her being very, and our childhoods were very similar. Right. So I thought, all right, well, if she's willing to go there and the other guests were, then in fairness, I should too, you know, and so, and and plus I was just in a very, I don't know, dark's the right word, but sad, you know, and just raw. To be fucking raw, exactly, raw yeah. is the best word, yeah, I was just in a really raw fucking place, so I'm like, you know what, fuck it, why, yeah. not in a self-destructive way, but why shouldn't people be able, there's this weird fallacy, I think, sometimes, of this thing you have to present yourself a certain way all the time, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm sure it's a global thing, but it seems like in L.A., New York, you know, in these very um, image-conscious places, a little bit in Chicago, that that's something that you have to do. And you know what? Maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older. Maybe because I got a little covering under my belt. I really don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? I'm an artist. I'm a storyteller at yeah. art. Sometimes I do it comedically. Sometimes I do it dramatically. I really don't fucking care. I'm raising children. I got bigger things yeah. to worry about than what you fucking think of me. You know what I mean? My goal is to not be an asshole to you and be a kind person and then everything outside of that is none of my business well it's interesting that you say that about the sort of flyover states maybe not being as image conscious because I think about this all the time in terms of recovery and openness and how lucky we are to have gotten sober in LA where it's, pretty, it's I would almost argue it's the norm it's so accepted mm -hmm. you know you got sober here I tried to get sober in Chicago and that's where my crew was and like 
my running partners, and it wasn't. Um, it was a little more frigid. Right. Uh, that's the right word. And it, listen, there are so there's a great silver community in Chicago. It's just what I needed, and I didn't even know I needed it was to come out here and you know have get like an attaboy, get a. It's going to be okay. It's uh, this is possible. It they don't do a, that in Chicago. It was a kinder, gentler way. Right. Like um, without violating any specific traditions for the path that I went down to uh, no longer drink anymore. Um, sometimes when you're celebrating um, uh, an anniversary or a right. birthday, you would call it, yeah. you know, and say, uh, out, out here I've experienced, you know, there's cakes and uh, people sing. And it's you get to give a speech. You get to, how did you do it? And, uh, you know, in Chicago, I know, I remember I went back, I had like a year sober. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, so is anybody celebrating a birthday? And, uh, Frank, 35 years. All right, good job, Frank. Um, yeah. So and it was just, it was just the, and again, everyone in that room stayed sober that day. Yeah. So what do I know? Yeah. There's a bunch of different, I guess, if there's a moral of the story, <laughs> there's a million different ways to to find the right path. And it's got to be right Absolutely. for you. You know, it just so happened that the beginning of my path, which I hope is, goes until they put me in the box, is it started out here. Yeah. So, so there you were in Chicago. And you said, well, let's kind of go through it a little. I like chronology. Let's do it. Okay. So first started around eight or nine. My drinking? Yeah. Well, I had my first drink, um, yeah, probably six. Do you remember it? It was a, uh, I think it was a Michelob. And uh, I saw cocaine and I was drinking, yeah, and I drank, I, <laughs> I was at a party my dad was having a party. My parents were 16 and 17 when I was born. My father had custody of me. And we lived in a neighborhood called Humble Park in Chicago. And he was uh, was a weird kind of... Um, he was a biker. He had long black hair, like uh, turquoise jewelry, always covered in grime from these ship gigs that he had, either in a factory or doing a like freelance motorcycle mechanic work. And um, so it was all like rock, clean, and funk. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Tower of Power and can function and par- uh, Parliament. So the music and there'd be drugs and uh, I was a lunatic when I was a kid, you know. And uh, so he gave me a belt buckle, a big Harley Davidson belt buckle because mm-hmm. I was causing like a ruckus at this party. Like I shouldn't have even been there. I should have been like yeah. in a room, like away from the bar. A beer, a bottle of Michelob, and a Playboy. What's the and, he was like, and he was like, calm down. Yeah, he knew he like, the formula. Go in the corner and calm down. So I'm like, oh, all right. So that was like my dad's. Yeah, he, he died, that's a technique. He died when he was 22 as a direct result of his alcoholism. But, uh, you know, so he was, he was, I only had him for six years. But, you know, that's the type of, <laughs> I can't even imagine yeah. my side of two children now to be, he give I mean, yeah. <laughs> six Six years. I actually think I was five. To give me a Playboy and a beer and be like, "You gotta fucking calm down." Like that—that's even the calming mechanism. Like, <laughs> I, but I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to go here right away. But listening to you on the Mental Illness Happy Hour, that almost seems like one of the nicer things. Yeah. That that happened. Um, you know, he he was concerned. Or there weren't. Um, there weren't. I don't think I understood, um, you know, you hear somebody say, 
they did the best that they could. Yeah. You know, you hear that a lot. In my 20s, I could that didn't even, that bounced off my ears. That didn't even, <laughs> it wasn't even getting in. Yeah. It did, my ears literally reflected that as pure nonsense and bullshit and rationalization. Then in my 30s, it started to make a little sense. I'm only, I just turned 40, so it's not like I'm well in my 40s, but thank you. You know, now I have some perspective. Now I actually have lived some life so that I can actually think about somebody other than myself and my own experience as it relates to the world. And now I can start to relate to the world as my experience is a part of that. You know, like I've heard someone say, yeah. you know, when you get sober, it's like you go from being the star of a movie with six billion extras. <laughs> That I've never heard to, that. Uh, you know, to like a cameo role, an, an ensemble piece. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of one of uh, six billion ensemble uh, yeah. cats. But um, I love that. You know, my mother uh, was sick. She had alcoholism, drug addiction, mental health issues. Single mom, totally incapable of almost zero maternal instinct. That's who she was. Yeah. You know, so like, it's unfortunate that I got dealt that hand. But I have some perspective on it now. And I believe anybody listening to this, if you feel like there is a way, and it, and it is, there are many ways, and they're all accessible, to figure out what your dilemma is if you, in fact, have one. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you feel jammed up, if you feel twisted, if you feel like I think the first thing to do, and this is the tricky part, is to be honest with yourself. Because if you're dealing with addiction, either with alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it is, the addiction is is, is rooted in self-delusion. And the yes. problem with being self-delusional is you're the last to know. Yeah. So you have to have the capacity to be honest, which is the trickiest part. Yeah. So once you get some awareness and you can say, wow, I have a problem with inappropriate sexual relationships. I have a problem with cocaine. Whatever, fill in the blank. Yeah. Then you can say, all right, well... I can seek help for this. Right. A lot of courage. And fuck other people's definition of courage. I'm telling you right now, it takes courage. You possess that. If you have the capacity to be honest, you also have the capacity to be courageous. Yeah. So now you can go, wow, I can go to a meeting and check that out. Oh, that meeting's not right for me. Go to another one. Because we've got one time through this. Yes. That's it. And so make it precious. Make it right. Go for it. I mean, the thing about denial, though, is we can't control it. And it can... It can fade, it can come back, it can fade again, and, you know, they sort of say, there's some very articulate way to phrase this that I can't do, but, you know, something about, you know, the, the, the denial lifts at the same moment grace can happen, and that's how people realize they have a problem and can change it. Absolutely. I think the... For 100%. And I think if you want to know why you drank, quit drinking. If you want to know why you did cocaine, quit cocaine. Yeah. Because once you stop whatever the destructive behavior is, whatever the underlying issues were are going to be glaringly apparent. Yeah. And then that's obviously the next stage of whatever your recovery is because then you can go, oh, I get it. Like in the literature that I read, it says alcohol is just a symptom. Yeah. We had to get down to causes and conditions. So, wow, there's causes and conditions I didn't even know. It's very easy to go, I am sad. Childhood yeah. makes pudgy sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's so easy. Right. And part of it is true, but that time has not passed. So how much power do I want to let that have in my life? And more importantly, if I'm talking about recovery and having an abundant full life that I can enjoy and walk around and look the world in the eye and be at peace, then I have to be concerned about my side of the street. Clean that up so that no matter what, I go, all right, 
I fucked that person over, I made an amends to them. That's good. We're clean. Mm-hmm. Done. You know? Oh, and it's funny that you talk about that thing coming up. It's going to ebb and flow, delusion, denial. You start to understand what that feels like. So when it happens, you can go, oh, I know what that is. I'm starting to get sucked down the rabbit hole again. And when you're new in recovery down whatever path you're going, that could be weeks or months because right. you don't know how to pull, get yourself out of it. But I think advanced recovery, if there is such a thing, is mm-hmm. it requires less pain to take action. Yes, yes, because you get uncomfortable more yes. quickly. And you know why the way it makes you feel. Yeah, but it's interesting too, you know, having just heard you talk about this sort of voice that says, like, you're a loser, you're lame, and that is, the, okay, the the thing is, you get sober and you get a little paranoid that you're ignoring uh, problems. I, I do. Mm. And so then that voice starts to seem real in a way. Yeah. What do you, so what do you think that voice is about? Well, I, first off, I think to even acknowledge the voice because some people won't even acknowledge that that voice exists. And it's like when you're having a conversation with yourself, there are two people talking. Mm-hmm. That's just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So just imagine when you're talking to yourself, you're talking to two people. Mm-hmm. Who's that other person? Mm-hmm. That's a legit thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. So there's a divided consciousness. To me, that's my drinking partner. Mm-hmm. It's always been my drinking. I live with my drinking partner. That person was there when all of the frips, in quotes, friends left. And mm-hmm. it was once again me alone mm-hmm. in my own depravity, shame and remorse. Once again, after a three or four day run, toxic, horrible, broken, just me and my drinking partner. Yeah. That's my voice. Yeah. And the, and the pitch is always, um, the pitch is always that this is going to be fun. This is going to work out. This will make things better. Yes. This is the right thing to do. Um, and so I'll listen and then I'll start to follow that down. And that's always the great bait. And this is what I hang my head on it. Hopefully this answers your question. If I knew how to control and manage my life, and I've survived some shit, right? Yeah. So I have gotten through some things. So this is why it gets tricky for me. Well, you, you made it through that other shell. Clearly you can survive. Clearly you know how to. But that Those things that used to work no longer work. They got me through those situations, and then they stopped. Just like alcohol. Mm-hmm. The, what I thought were assets have turned into liabilities. Mm-hmm. Again, capacity to be honest. All mm-hmm. right, those things no longer work. I cannot rely on those tools to work for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Even though the the presentation of that may be to the contrary. So, now now I'm veering, but the, the point is is to just go, I can't sit across from you right now and say, you know, by the end of today, I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to leave here and then assemble a sequence of events and actions in my day that will guarantee me happiness fiscal and emotional success Mm -hmm. because I know it's best for me and I'm going to go out and do that. Mm -hmm. There's how I trip myself. Mm -hmm. And people listening might be going, are you a fucking lunatic? That's exactly what you need to do. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. That's what got me drunk. Mm -hmm. Because if I knew how to do that, I would have seen alcohol and drugs as a liability, said that's toxic and bad for me, clapped my hands together and said, thank God, I know that, it's bad for me, and I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm powerless. Right. And I believe that stuff that it says in the, liter- the various literatures of lack of power is my dilemma. Yes. I believe that. Right. And with all the best intentions in the world, I will leave here and I will try to control and manage my life and somehow seem disappointed. It'll somehow be insufficient. And I, I, I'll be confused by around 11 tonight of what happened. I mm-hmm. really wanted this to be a great day. I had such great plans. I had mm-hmm. such great ideas. Mm-hmm. And yet here I am feeling lonely 
discontent and confused. Yeah, and so so the best way to do that is is to I mean here's the confusing part a little bit because I do think attitude makes a huge difference. So how do you get up in the morning and go, okay, I can control this, and yet I can because my perception can be off otherwise. My 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 previous run might have sounded a little preachy, so I want (laughs) you want to. You want to addendum? addendum. It's just like, you know, but in all honesty, that's, I believed what I just said, and it's, it sounds very rote, but for me, when my, my manic mind starts chomping at my day and trying to motivate me to get going and win at the game of life, that's, I need very simple slogans and phrases that hit the brakes on that. Mm-hmm. And here's what I do. I believe in um, a God, mm-hmm. right? And so I turn my life and my will over to the care of God. Hit the, half your listeners just turn this podcast off. No, they're used to it. <laughs> that is that is not attached to any religion, organized religion, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even really quantify or tell you uh, who or what that God is, other than if I if I had to. You know, if you had a gun in my head and you said, how could you sum it up, please? Because you can't just be that mysterious about it. I would have to say uh, love and kindness. Mm -hmm. So I turn my life and care, Mm -hmm. my my life and will, over to the care of love and kindness. The power of love and kindness, which I believe is my dumb, human, frail mind. Is That's the closest I can get to the concept of God without robes, swinging urns of incense, kneeling... Buddha statues. What, all of that. So you don't kneel. I kneel in the morning as a as a physical reminder to myself that I am not in charge. Do you does an image come to your head at all when you do that? Bud Abbott. No. <laughs> <laughs> don't even know who that is. You know who Abbott Costello is? Come on. Okay, well, if you said Abbott of Abbott and Costello, I would have known. I'm pretty Bud Abbott. Um, my, I have a sponsee who, uh, whose share is her higher power. Her chair? Oh, share? Yeah. You know, I think that's great. And yeah. I know a lot of people think, you can't do that because, uh, whatever. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. You do whatever you want. That's the beautiful part about it. Yeah. If it works for you, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And my idea of who and what God is has changed through my entire sobriety. It changed from the time that I was a kid. You know, I was an altar boy. I was raised in a fairly rigid Catholic environment. I went to Catholic grade school. I went to an all-boys Catholic um, Dominican brother prep school. I went Mm -hmm. to Jesuit college. So, you know, there was some... But yet you... you, I I just heard you talk about, too, that when your grandfather died and you said there is no God. Well, when he died, yeah, that was one... I went into a church and I went out of the altar and uh, I spit on the crucifix. And I, I, I paused waiting for a fist to come crashing through the roof and literally put me out like a cigarette and when nothing happened I just kind of laughed to myself like yeah this is all a fucking sham and even if it isn't fuck you right right to the cross fuck you you piece of shit you just took the one the one fucking thing that I had mm-hmm. you took there's nothing more that you can do to me there's not you've, you've taken everything and now I lived on my own for the next year and now that's just where I was in your story. Okay, okay, can we go back to chronology? Okay, so you you have that Michelob, you get the Playboy. Do you even know like are is the Playboy exciting? I don't I don't know one that isn't. Um. At, at, at six, 
Well, you know, there were some things that happened in that house that, um, yeah. tragically, uh, certainly at the time, uh, sexually with some other people in the house. So I was exposed to that stuff much earlier than I probably should have been. So yeah. I kind of understood uh, what the various parts were used for. And that was in, exciting on a certain A little bit, yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, I had, um, you know, because you're a kid, I... I just opened the Playboy up at the party, and I just started humping the humping. You know, the beer was on one side. I took the belt buckle off, and I was just humping the Playboy. And you know, then I heard laughter, and I looked up, and there were like a half moon of people just yeah. cracking up. They were all teenagers too, and like in their early twenties, so yeah. they thought it was the funniest shit ever. So my dad grabbed me, and you know, gave me a spanking, and he's like, "Now you got to go to fucking bed." Yeah. And I look back now, and I like how insane all of it was yeah. of like. You know, after he puts me to sleep, it like was like one of his friends like, man, I don't understand what happened. You gave him a beer and you gave him the Playboy. I mean, what else do you do right. with a kindergartner right. when, when oh you want to just like, it's all so fucking weird. Oh my God. So, yeah. And so, and so then it was, alcohol was very accessible, but it sounds like you were your mom's designated driver a lot. You know what's weird is alcohol, alcohol was... Was mysterious and destructive. Like I was, I watched it destroy uh, my dad's side of the family. And I moved in with my mom, and she would take me out drinking with her. So I would be out at bars, you know, at nine or ten, drinking Manhattans with her till one or two in the morning, and then whichever one of us could drive the best would drive home. The fact that you were not of age to drive was never a concern. No, even at my uncle's wedding. My grandfather, who I later found out was sober, had relapsed twice. One was at my uncle's wedding. Mm. Both he and my mom were so drunk that I was, I was uh, one of the ring bearers. Bear. Yeah. And uh, I was driving the station wagon home, and I, I was pretty okay on the streets, but I had never driven on the highway before. So we started to go on the highway, and I really started to freak out. And I'm like, I don't think I can do this. Like. <laughs> And my mom's like, just fuck it. You know, this is yeah. rough, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's swearing. She's hitting me. Like, just fuck it. Do it. And I'm like shaking and crying. I'm like, I can't. I don't, I think I'm going to crash. And so she was so pissed that she had to drive. And my grandfather passed out. Oh, my and God. In the side seat. But that's the only. Yeah, I saw him drink. Well, I only saw him drink once. But I know he went out twice. One time he went down. He had this uh, mistress that used to fly up. Uh, the one that broke up his marriage he saw until they put him in the box but um, one time he flew down to Florida to spend some time with her and he relapsed there and basically she was watching her boss she was like an executive assistant she was watching her boss's mansion like down in Florida uh -huh. and my grandfather he was a stunning handsome guy big used to be I'll tell you that story but because I don't want to ruin this one so anyway he starts drinking early times was his drink and he's like a lunatic, and he's he thinks you know when you, you get paranoid when you're drinking, you know she's fucking the this guy. Oh, yeah. It's a whole thing, and so she starts hitting him with a fucking frying pan mm -hmm. and broke his nose and cut open the side of his thing. And my uncle had to go and, and grab him and get him on a plane. And he was you could just see him so broken, like you know because mm -hmm. you'd go to he called it going to the club, so you go to the club every day, which I know I'm a member of the club. Oh, right, right, right. So you know you sit around and play cards. It was like a clubhouse that yeah. would have meetings and. Uh, so when he died, um, this is now going back in chronological order. So going yeah. back, actually no, he went out. So this is later. So when he died, 
Uh, he had to go out before he died. Yeah, he, I know that. he was not a, a mythical ghost yeah. beast. Um, I was at his wake where they had the open casket, and I was in the back, and I was pretty much cried out. I just was so it happened so quickly. Um, he had a heart attack, and um, this old lady, like eighty, right? I mean, just frail old woman, black patent leather purse and shoes and the, the black morning veil comes and sits right next to me like I'm way in the back there's probably 25 rows of chairs that she could have gone in. you know mm-hmm. what I mean I'm in the back mm-hmm. and other people are up saying there are fathers and Hail Marys in front of the casket and she comes and she sits next to me and she puts her hand on my leg and she goes your grandfather was the most dashing gangster I had ever seen and then she just gets up and she walked out. And uh, I'm like, what? And it turns out when he was a younger guy, he was a no-fuck-around gangster. A real life. Ran guns with this other guy who I won't say his name even though he's passed away. And uh, Like a name we know. Fish only gets caught if it opens its mouth. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to be responsible for that. No, he's long since passed. Yeah. He's a good guy. I don't want to slander anybody. And yeah. I'm not really slandering my grandfather, but... It just was all, once again in this weird, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, bouncing around here to answer your very simple question. Which was, I don't remember. How accessible was alcohol? Yeah. I saw alcohol as a release for people, then I saw it destroy their lives, and there were all these secrets. So, al- But alcohol was always married, was always side by side to this brutal chaos mm-hmm. and this kind of two-dimensional perceived elation mm-hmm. it was a, it was a it was fantasy it was not real mm-hmm. you know there was all this hope and excitement uh, as people were drinking right mm-hmm. the world's going to be great we're going to get out of here i'm going to go back to school i'm gonna, you know as the drinks are going mm-hmm. down and then once pure intoxication started misery arrived mm-hmm. resentment arrived uh physical abuse arrived you know it all switched it all turned on a dime so that, you know, halfway there was tremendous hope and excitement and then the fucking wheels just came off. Right. That's how I saw alcohol. And so I was around it, but it, it, was, it was like a double-edged sword. One was, don't ever do this, and then one was like, here, have a drink with me. Mm-hmm. So it was just a, Did people actually say, don't ever do this, or you saw that? Oh, my grandfather said, listen, whatever you do, you're going to stay away from the, the drink and cigarettes. He told me that one night. And you know, it's so weird when you start unpacking all this shit. I, in like a therapy session, I felt so like there was this one, I kept saying like, I'm sorry. This kink thing kept repeating in my head, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was apologizing for, you know? And it turns out one night we were on a walk. I was like nine. And he made me give him my word that I would never drink smoke and uh, I did I gave him my word and I feel like I violated my work you know and being from Chicago right or wrong you know your word is your honor and that's it and you give your fucking word and that's all you have because money's going to come and go some years you buy the jewelry some years you sell it right but you got your word is your honor and I, and I never knew that that particular conversation had that much power in my life that I had really meant it that much and felt that I had betrayed him and myself and you know just one little nugget as we're trudging this path of recovery to realize wow I'm just not 
hundred percent aware aware of all of the things at play in my life. Right. Right. How old were you when you remembered that? A weird thing happened to me when I was let's see. My son's eleven, so when he was six. So I could write a story about a guy who knows about numbers, but so that was, as far as I'm concerned, you're a number genius. <laughs> Because you remembered the time that I had said <laughs> When my son was six, I was we were singing happy birthday to him. And I was holding a cake that had the number six on it with uh, that was lit. And I was holding it out for him to blow the candle. And I saw how small he was. And something snapped in my brain. Where I thought, I could not have been that size. Like, I wasn't that little. Like, he's so little, you know? He's so tiny. And uh, I couldn't get my head around the fact that that the things that had happened to me started when I was that, actually a year prior, but really, like, really started going at six. Because in my, my memories, I'm this size. Yeah. You know, I'm 5'8", yeah, yeah, yeah. 210 right now. Right. So it's like, if you want to fuck around, we'll go. Right. We'll go, and we're both going to get hurt, but we'll go. I'll go. Yeah. You know, like, there's no... It doesn't just happen now. It, there, I can stand up for myself. Yeah. So this little weird... Bing! Like, a little wire just came loose. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse until I had to go see a therapist and discover what all these things were that just because I made it through something does not mean necessarily that that's over, but... It's amazing how long I had convinced myself that that was the case. Like, move, move yeah. through, move around, whatever you got to do to get past it, to get, you know, rarely through it, use most likely around it. Yeah. Which seems like an insignificant difference, but it's a profound difference. If you get through something, then you're through it. It has a beginning, middle, and an yeah. end. Whereas if you go around it, it's still going to be waiting for you. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of time or when it comes back to haunt you. I didn't know that, though. Had you never been in therapy before then? Um, I had DCFS came. They were going to take me out of the house a couple times. I had social workers, uh, priests, uh, counselors, for sure. But there really wasn't a... I was such in survival mode that it was... I'd be very delicate about what I said because, you know, I knew there was a world where if I fully... um, Confessed is the wrong word. If I fully... um, Shared what was happening, mm-hmm. then I would get taken out of my house, and I knew that foster care or even becoming a ward of the state would probably be worse than where I was at. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, I had to kind of parcel out truths mm-hmm. in order to just kind of get by day to day for a long period of time until I was probably 16, really 18, but, but 16 for sure. And so did the parceling out make you able to compartmentalize what happened in almost that denial way? Yeah. I mean, um, there were just such other fundamental things of, like, eating. You know, like, it wasn't like, you know, when I was 14, I I panhandled for a little, most of that summer uh, to eat. I would steal food. Um, you know, it was rough. And then I got, I moved in with some family members that did the best they could, but we had to steal to eat because there were even more of us. And then we wound up moving back into the place 
that I had just moved out of. But you painted. You painted and sold paintings for. I did. Yeah, I couldn't. I was that 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 brought it. Man, it's a shameful thing, man, to beg beg for money. So it's just rough. I have such compassion for people that are in that spot because it's just there's nothing. I know some people get a job. Like, yeah. Okay. It's like, what are you going to do? You're going to walk into a business? And, I mean, sure, there is a world where that's possible, but you're talking about an emotional state that is so depraved and frail, and it's it's yeah so intense. I can't even tell you. Yeah. I mean, out of all the stuff that you talk about from your childhood, it almost seems like that's the one that resonates as the most painful. Kind of, just because you're, you're, there's, I guess there's a, uh, a sense of being so alone yeah. that, like, uh, even if you're hitting me and I know you, well, I know you. Like, at least there's some connection, as perverse and as insane as that sounds, and Stockholm syndrome y. Yeah, yeah. At least there's a connection there. At least the hand that's hitting me is connected to somebody that might sometime in the future or possess a memory for me in the past that brings me some kind of. A smile or a grin. Right. Whereas being on a corner, having people look at you like you're a piece of shit is rough. There's no hope in that. There's just nothing. It's like, I need a dollar to eat. Yeah. And there's no, there's nothing, like, it, it's not a want situation. It's a need situation that's not being met. Right. So it's not like, I want a new toy or I want, like, there's, there's a, um, it's moment to moment panic and terror because even when I get this, I know that I'm gonna have to do it again. Yeah. It's not. So you're 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 off this normal track of living and feeling fine, and it it breaks something in you. you yeah. Know? Something just snaps. And so when you started drinking, um, you know, when you got a career going as a drinker. Danielle told me that, like, it was... This is what she told me this morning. That when comics were performing with you, mm-hmm. they would say, uh, yeah, can, can I go on early? Because, you know, I kind of got to get out of here before he gets going. <laughs> Did they really say that? I, I, I never even heard That's that. what she told me. Why was it? Because I... Because was... you just got so crazy. She didn't specify what crazy meant. Yeah, I mean, you know, I... I wasn't drinking to calm down. I wasn't drink. I was drinking for the crazy. To be honest with you, like the beat poets and the throw and the marrow of life. Like to me, I saw that as the, my ticket. It was my fantasy because mm-hmm. I knew what life was like if I didn't drink. It was. I, I didn't know I was an alcoholic at the time. I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know that I had a disease of perception. That mm-hmm. I. That um, I was chronically dissatisfied with mm-hmm. my default mode, and so that like kind of wrenching feeling in my gut was part of a larger issue. Right. And so if that's what I'm getting in just being sober, why would I want to exist that way? If I don't even understand what that is, I don't want to feel that way. You know? Yeah. And I knew that drinking was this rocket ship ride, like Burroughs' inner zone. Even though I never done heroin, just like this. I wanted it to be chaotic. I wanted there to be good stories. I wanted there to be this larger-than-life. Not like I was trying to create a larger-than-life persona. I wanted to lead a larger-than-life yes. thing. I, that's what I wanted to experience, you know? And so 
when I first moved. I only drank out here for six months, which is so weird. Like, um, but I tried to push a car off of, uh, like, I, I heard about Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah. And so I, I had a Kia rental car, and I, I told this kid, I go, take me up to Mulholland. And so we go up to Mulholland at, like, 4 in the morning, and I'm like, all right, come on. And so I open the car up, and I'm pushing it. And he's like, what are we doing? He's on the other side. But we're pushing it like it's out of gas. I put it in neutral. He goes, what the fuck are we doing? I go, I want to launch it off oh my God. the cliff here and see if it blows up A-team style. Let's see if we can fucking get this thing to go. Because you had insurance on it, and, oh, or you didn't even care. Yeah. So he's like, what are you talking about? So he jumps in, and he hits the pushes the emergency brake down. He's like, I'm not walking all the way back down yeah. the fucking hill. He didn't give a shit about the car. Yeah. I didn't even know there were houses down there. Uh-huh. Like, I just thought it was a cliff, you know? Uh-huh. I'm like, let's launch it off and see what happens. He's like, we can't do that. I was just telling her before we sat down, there was a guy uh, at the improv, Patrick Keaton, um, mm-hmm. was on stage, and I was sitting on a stool at a table, and there was a bench that ran along the wall. So it was a bench, the table, and then stools on the outside facing the stage. Mm-hmm. And this guy kept tapping my stool. He was sitting on the bench. Oh, wait, you told this on a podcast. Go on. Oh, I've, yeah. heard, I've heard this. So on. I'm like, hey, man, can you, can you, not, can you not tap my stool? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sorry. And he starts tapping it again. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, I can feel it when you're tapping. Yeah. My stool is like, I'm on the bench. It's, I keep slipping. I'm like, then put your feet on the floor, man. So then he starts kicking my stool, and I threw the table. Yeah. And then I just started kicking the fuck out of the guy. I'm like, how the fuck do you... And I, I'm not that guy. I'm not... Uh, well, I, it sounds hypocritical saying I'm not the guy while I'm being <laughs> Tell the guy. Sorry. But, uh, you didn't do that all the time. I didn't do saying. it all the time. I don't like losing my temper. I don't think I do it almost. That's probably the only time in L.A. that I've done it. I did jump out of my car one time when a Hummer went around me and I almost hit an old lady crossing the crosswalk, which is why I was stopped. But his dumb Hummer brain couldn't get around the idea that... The old lady needed to not die. Yeah, so I got out and I tried to punch his car and he took out. He, he took yeah. out so I couldn't hit it. So two times in 12 years. I'll take that. Yeah. I've, been, I've been here for 12 years. So, um, But I drank, like my drink was a pint glass of um, Bombay Sapphire and Tonics with two limes and a shot of tequila. And so I would guzzle half the pint glass, do the shot, smoke a cigarette, guzzle the other half, and then order another round. That's efficient. And so that was, that's, that was towards the end. And so I was drinking probably a bottle of Bombay a day and half a bottle of tequila, probably minimum. Jesus. And um, th- this is like taking a tangent from the least interesting aspect of that story. But it's, but okay, I remember when you told that story on your podcast, you talked about how people eating drives you crazy, like the noises, like that tapping and all that stuff. Yeah, like if Just someone's chewing response. gum yeah. right next to me, or if they're chewing like... Oh my God, don't even do that. Yeah. Open, I'm like, are you fucking animal? Like, I can't... It's so funny, because I get on my kids a lot, and my son's got braces, so I've taken it like a little easier with him, but I still... Like, in our house was a black family when I was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought I was black until I was seven. I talked like a little black yeah. kid, I talked like a black kid. So when I, when my dad died, my uncle came and got me out of the hood, moved me over and with my mom. My mom had a very strict beat the black out of me program. Yeah. <laughs> so like any dialect that I had, I would just get open hand, whap, whap, just literally beat the black out of me. Then once the black was beaten out of me, it was like, that's how I, I know, man, you know, whack, whack, 
So like I have these, <laughs> and it still drives me nuts. Like yeah. I, I, the, obviously the beat the black, I don't really give a fuck about, but um, that noise still is such an old idea in my head, and it's like nails on chocolate. I have the same thing. I have no excuse. Oh, but like grotesque. my first, my brother would do this thing where he would gulp, like he would sip plus hot chocolate and he still does it to drive me crazy it's like (sighs) and I if people are chewing gum it happens to me eh, like three or four times a week are you okay on anything Um, I basically what my thing is I just I just try to passive aggressively stop them so what I'll do I'll just give that look (laughs) like in a meeting it just happened the other day people will like someone will be doing it and I'll just look back at them like in shock and horror like they're hitting someone and then they'll stop for a while and then I just like do it again when they start up again have you ever tried that? when someone chews gum with their mouth open oh god it's over 18 I I think they might be (laughs) Al-Qaeda like you're a fucking terrorist yeah yeah and I know that sounds horrible that I'm (laughs) <laughs> but then, but you're like, describing it well like at the it's, same it's time. It's such a egregious violation. It's like sneezing right in someone's face without putting your your hand over your mouth. That's better. That's better like, than the chewing, as far as I'm concerned. It's so disrespectful for the people that are around yeah. you. You know what I mean? Like, and I'll take if like if that's the shit that really gets me going. I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. I'm on the right side of shit. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. of all of the things that could be wrong that I'm let you know that I'm letting slide to not yeah. get me amped up. But there's that. Oh. But I have like a trigger response. It's just like a, it doesn't you make throw, sense. You throw the mean mug stare. I do the stare. Um, I will instruct friends. You know, just kind of like, here's the thing. I have a huge problem with that. I will, um, I mean, not date a guy. If I like him and he does that, oh, too bad. If he, if he like, 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 let's say I go on a date with a guy. The slurping is one thing, but the gum chewing, I'm just like, ah, oh, I can't really, it's not really. It's horrible. It's Can't date an active alcoholic. Can't date a gum no. chewer. Active uh, alcoholic. Will yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Will you date somebody in recovery? Yeah, and I, well, and I have. I wouldn't say it's been a raring success, but, but not the dating active alcoholics has been a raring success either. That's rough, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but, you know, it is it, it two, two uh, you know, alcoholics even in its sobriety is a lot of alcoholics. And yeah, I mean, that pretty much qualifies you for, for Al. <laughs> just, Do you, just, the, just the relationship alone. <laughs> your wife is not one of us, as they say. No, um, she was my drinking partner for a long time. Really? And then, um, she got, and I didn't even know this was a thing. But you know how, like, when you have, you're at a bar and there's two sinks, one soapy water for the pitchers and then the other one they yeah. rinse the pitchers in just regular water. Yeah. I guess if you don't really rinse the soap out, a bacteria can grow in the soap and uh-huh. she got it like in her liver and kidney and she uh-huh. was in the ICU. We were in our 20s. She was in the ICU for like three or four days. And it was almost like her body created its own abuse. Yeah. Because every time she drank after that, she would just get sick. Oh my God. So she just stopped drinking. She's like, every time I drink, I get sick. Why would I do that? But she like, she she could go toe to toe with me drinking like and she doesn't need to do recovery or anything like that you know who knows not my business yeah yeah anyway. no, I, I, you know that's 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 on her but I, I mean if I had to guess I'd probably say no yeah you know so um, okay so when you were tearing it up what Danielle was referring to was not lots of fights you were just like trying I was to- never a big fighter although um, because I came from a really 
intense, like um, a lot of screaming and a lot of breaking shit and a lot of hitting stuff. I created a persona, like a tough guy persona. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in a handful of fights, but like I wrestled, yeah. um, which I loved. And I got involved as a teenager with a group of people um, that were very tough. And because I knew, I didn't, I wasn't very sure which way my life was going to go. Yeah. So I thought if I'm going to be on the street, then I, I'm not going to be in the middle or at the lower end of that spectrum. I'm going to be a shot caller so that I can, I'm not going to survive this bullshit in the house to be on the street to then get more of it. Fuck that. You yeah. know what I mean? So I wind up, I wound up being the leader of this crew when I was about 15 and 16. And it was a group of tough kids. And then one kid decided that I should die, and can, and they were gonna. I was gonna die. I was about a block. I got tipped off two blocks away from where I was about to get killed, and um, I just walked away from that completely. So, but the the reason why I bring that up is, almost all those kids were probably tougher than I was, but I was the head guy yeah. for a reason because I wasn't the toughest one. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to be on the wrong end of that equation. Mm -hmm. So I felt like if I control my image mm -hmm. and people think I'm tough, they just won't mess with me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's probably what she's talking about because mm -hmm. I brought a lot of that out from Chicago with me because mm -hmm. I saw a lot of weakness. Yeah, you know, I was still drinking for six months. I saw a lot of weakness, a lot of phony bullshit, and I'm like, I'm gonna walk all walk yeah. all over this. You know what I mean? I'm gonna bulldog this. Yeah. That old drinking mentality of like, like we we first started talking about. I'm going to control this. Yes. I'm going to make this the way that I want. Yes. And it's tricky out here because a lot of people think, and they get away with it, and they find much success. At like, this is who I want people to think that. Yeah. Because it's show business. Yeah. You know, we're in show business, the entertainment industry, and I have made my, I have found my path to success as being um, authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, being honest. Well, and a packed piece because Absolutely. that breaks down inside. You know, the three in the morning or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you. So when did you decide you wanted to be a comic, or did you? Were you a writer first? No. Well, I was a writer first. Well, I wrote first, mm -hmm. and I believe that writers write. You know, I write for free. I get paid to take notes. Mm -hmm. So that's how I view my career as a writer. Like, I'll write something and then someone pays me, but they give me notes. So right. I'm getting paid to take those notes. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I do open mics for free. I do sets for free. So when I perform comedy for commerce, it's someone telling me, we like that joke, we don't like that joke. So I'm doing comedy for notes. Yeah. And I'm taking adjustments. Yeah. So... Um, I was I was writing in grade school and I was writing in high school and I started doing stand up. I started doing second city and stand up in my early twenties, and then I've been doing stand up now for about eighteen years. I just put out a, an album shit about a month ago. Mm -hmm. I made it available for free on my website for seven days and then I just took it down. That's it. That's it. Um, why did you do that? Just felt like the right thing to do. Um. That's, I mean, and you definitely have, you know, I, I've heard you talk in your podcast about how people have come to you wanting to advertise, mm -hmm. and you won't. No, I won't. Uh, <laughs> and yet, you give away t-shirts on yeah. the regular, so that's probably a significant expense. Yeah, I gave away, uh, shit, probably 2,000 t-shirts so far. All over the world. It's great. It's great. I mean, it's brilliant marketing, too. But well, do I want to go and... and, and reach out to Crackle, let's say, mm -hmm. and give them $5,000 to advertise 
for a little quarter for a day, right? And put a little Nick Betancourt show podcast button click fucking nonsense on their site or say, wow, you guys listen to my show? I want to invest in you. Crackle, if you're listening, I'm open to advertising. <laughs> I mean, I Crackle's find it great, by the really... way. They're doing, I mean, I'm just using that as a site that would fit the, you know, the, um, yeah. you know, that's a cool site that has an eclectic um, or Rolling Stone, you know, like something yeah. that's got a wide palette of, because the log line of my podcast is half comedy, half drama, all heart. Because mm-hmm. I've been doing stand up for 18 years, I've been writing dramatic television for 10. And I really want to have the through line of both those things be the heart mm-hmm. that drives that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like those would be good examples, even though Crackle's like a perceived, almost like a Mad Magazine type oh, of thing. Oh, by the way, I was picturing the candy bar. I was picturing K-Crackle. No, Crackle, the website, they're doing yeah. original, you know, yeah. they're doing original content now. They have some great writers on there that yeah. are writing some great, um, like, essays and fictional pieces. It's actually a really cool site. But that was just an example of taking a contemporary thing that most people go, that's what I want to advertise on. You know, mm-hmm. I want to piggyback on their views. But, mm-hmm. you know, if I have 10 people listening to me, it's my honor to send them shirts. And then if they're cool enough to wear my shirt then it's a relationship yeah. it's just not me going all bow before me and then run out and talk about me and then come back and I'll talk some more I don't know I just think the evolution of the entertainment of what we're doing now is a little past that the emails that you get for yeah. this are probably very personal very. about people talking and that's amazing and I think that look fatty falls down very funny mm-hmm. always be there Cars turning into robots, shooting each other out in space, always be there. Phenomenal entertainment, great ticket. But now there's room for this. Yeah. And this is what I'm down for. And I think this will take care of itself. Whatever my podcast is supposed to be is none of my business. I show up, I be of service to that. I want to have, when it's funny, it's funny. When it's sad, it's sad. Mm -hmm. Let it be what it is Mm -hmm. and let the people enjoy that. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. then it'll take care of itself. Yeah, I mean, that's an act of faith. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> forget, forget the kneeling, you know? Um, and so and so, you started doing Second City and performing, and you found success uh, quickly or easily? No way. I um, Well, I found, like, I think you can... Success varies. Like, if you're doing stand-up and you can get up at the shows that you want that, that don't pay, but they're just the, the shows where there's an audience and people who are doing comedy that you respect and admire and then you could share the stage with them I, I think that's a version of success mm-hmm. certainly you know and so you're you're accepted by your peers you can get stage time when you need it that was my first version of success like oh this guy's funny we would want him on the show no money just like mm-hmm. acceptance I guess creative acceptance you know so that's the first acceptance that I found and then I did the Chicago Comedy Festival in 2001 and got offered um, to be represented by an agent out here mm-hmm. And it's so funny that we're having this conversation today because tragically 9-11 was yesterday, today's yes. the 12th, but I quit my day job the morning of 9-11. And I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, I wasn't sure if I was going to move out to LA and I watched the second plane go into the tower in Chicago. And I had an epiphany because I was raised, you know, my grandfather was an immigrant, my, my father's father was an immigrant, was from Puerto Rico, my, my grandfather, my mom's father was from actually born in Scotland but was Irish um, and told me you know this is the greatest country in the world and you can do anything that you want as you find the hardest working guy you know and work twice as hard as him and all your dreams will come true now I've already shared some shit that happened to me you know so I was like fuck man this but I knew I knew that the idea of America was greater than I that they they weren't lying that they weren't fucking around because I knew where they had come from yeah 
and that, that my grandfather had a two flat. Like how did, he had a similar story being a poor kid like me. Mm-hmm. And when he died, he had a two flat. You know, and the Puerto Rican side was a little more broken because heroin was involved. But um, so I, I'm not personalizing that tragedy, but I was inspired by it. Mm-hmm. I, I I said, "Fuck this, fuck this attack right now." This I I'm I am an American, and uh, that sounds corny, but I and I was working at the airport when they were starting the bring planes down, landing all the planes. It was total chaos. And I went into the Human Resources Department, and I said, I'm quitting. And they go, today's the wrong day to do that. And I go, no, today's the right day. And uh, and they said, take a leave of absence, because you have an amazing job, and you're going to go to L.A. Because I said, I told them what I'm doing. I go, Mm -hmm. I'm moving to L.A. And they said, you're going to fail. Basically, you know, they're like, look, millions of people go there, they fail. Just keep the door open here so mm-hmm. that if you need your job back, it'll be here when you're done. And I said, if I do that, then I'll always know it's here waiting for me. And I don't think I'll ever, I can't have any safety nets. Mm-hmm. And she said, all right. And she said, once you sign this, this job's gone forever. Mm-hmm. And I signed it. And as soon as the planes got up. You came out here. I came out to it. Wow. Yeah. And... Um, and then, when did you start writing television? Um, 2000, 2006. I booked a pilot in 2005 as a dramatic actor, which is weird. I couldn't. I did stand-up on TV a couple times, like on Comedy Central and NBC, which is my first success as a comedian, mm-hmm. you know, or my first TV spots. Mm-hmm. And But I couldn't book any... <laughs> half hour roles as an actor I wanted booking these roles as like a cop a detective a bad guy on on one hour or a gangster and um, so I booked this pilot and it never went And so, but I talked to the writer of the pilot and I said listen man I have an idea for this show I don't want you like I'm not hustling you mm-hmm. to have you like do anything with it but can you just tell me if if it's if I should pursue it because I don't have any experience in that world mm-hmm and so we went to lunch. I told him, and he said, "This is fucking great. I'll go out with you with that." Oh my god! And I, that's what I said. I go, "I don't even know that. What does that mean?" Like, because yeah. I had never sold anything, or I didn't know. I was totally unfamiliar with the process. So we went in. We talked to the deal. You know, we had a deal with the production company. They liked it. Then we went into the uh, studio, and they liked it. Then we went to the network, and um, they bought it in the room. Oh my god! So I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" And so we co-wrote this pilot. It, they never shot it, but yeah. that was my foot in the door. And then, because we co-wrote it, I needed to write an original piece. On your own. On my own. And so, I did that, and um, since 2006, I got hired on the Black Donnelly's. That was my first staffing show, and that went for 13 and then got canceled. And then the year after that, I got hired on Law & Order SVU, and I did three seasons on that. So, since 2006, I've been working consistently as a dramatic writer. Are you on a show right now? I'm a consulting producer for Chicago PD, yeah. Nice. On NBC. Consulting producer sounds like a real big gig. <laughs> it's very nice. Yeah, I worked. Uh, I also took it very specifically because the way contracts work right now is you can't develop. So I, cu- I couldn't go out and pitch. Say so you and I had an idea for a show. I couldn't go out and pitch it. I'm exclusive to whatever that right. show is, and also the studio that's producing the show. So I took a consulting gig so that I could actually go out and then try to sell my own stuff again this year. So next week I'll be pitching a show of a boom comic that. Um, that I'm developing for a show, probably pitch it to Fox and NBC, so I'm super stoked. Because, like, the, being a, co- com- a comic and then writing for uh, these dramatic 
shows is an interesting dichotomy. I rarely tell people in the drama world that I do stand-up, mm-hmm. and then I rarely tell people in the stand-up world that I do, um, that I that I write, which is so funny because I've actually had comics that didn't know, in New York as a matter of fact, come in and audition, and then I was, you know, if I was producing the episode, I'd be, mm-hmm. and they're like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> You friends with someone here? Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, and then I would, I would say, I would pause the casting session so that they wouldn't be, yeah, caught, so caught off guard. And yeah. I'd say, come down a couple things, you know, I'm gonna bump it down the list three or four times, reset, go, yeah, on, and then, um, and then I tell them, you know, this is what they're looking for, or what I'm looking for, actually. <laughs> so, so weird. Yeah, it's bizarre. To the point that when I was, you know, looking you up, I was like, Danielle, it's so weird. There's someone with the same exact crazy name. Who's a TV writer? She's like, no, that's him. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. I keep everything on. I know a lot of people like to ring the bell and be like, look at all the shit I've done. Yeah. I just like, I don't, I don't know. I want to just serve whatever the project is that I'm that I'm working on, and that's it. You know, oh, I, this is going back slightly, but so what I think is very interesting is growing up the way you grew up. Uh, you know, having to to be on the streets, panhandling, and that. Your attitude about money is all this. Let me let me actually spend money on my podcast instead of making money on my podcast. Yeah. What do you think that's about? Well, I want to say two things. So, although that time in my life of panhandling was very profound and had a very deep effect on my life, I don't want to make it seem like Oliver Twist, where like I was no. out for a long period of time, which oddly enough made it even more confusing right. to have it be wedged in between being able to eat and then all of a sudden the wheels came off and then you know what I mean like yes, it was even but- more surreal so I just didn't want it to seem like it was you know there were times where there was Christmas and there were presents under the tree like it was just a weird but it was never like the lap of luxury oh no no no, no, no. but I didn't want to make it seem just in fairness you know what I mean yeah. to, the, to the story but um, the reason why I like investing money in um, I think it's the right thing to do I just think it's the right thing to do, and um, I don't have. I have a. I have a, a hardcore group of people that listen to my show all over the world, and it's between me and them. And anybody else that discovers the show then comes into that fold. Mm-hmm. And there's no like. I'm not hoping to get a TV show out of it. Right. I'm not. I'm hoping that like uh, like Steve Simone's coming by it too. Mm-hmm. Great guy. I really think he's funny. Catholic from Philadelphia and he wears his Catholicism on his sleeve and I don't see that a lot mm-hmm. so that's what I want to talk about mm-hmm. like wow you seem to have a really fundamental sound relationship with your Catholicism in a city like LA where you're out every night at the comedy store mm-hmm. which is the den of fucking depravity mm-hmm. what's that like and I'm fascinated by that story so I want to serve that story and then whatever happens from that will be what's supposed to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, once I surrendered, which came from the path of recovery, the idea of money, which was had been hurting me my entire life, I surrendered that, that I would do whatever the next right indicated thing was in my life mm-hmm. and accept that as that was what I was supposed to be doing, that I would be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And by that, I meant fundamental needs met. Eating, clean clothes, safe shelter. Mm-hmm. That's the deal that I made with God that I think is love and kindness. Mm-hmm. Then I'm being straight up with you because I was at the breaking point out here where my son was 
one, I didn't have enough. I was working at Starbucks. I didn't have enough money to buy his. My wife, all three of us couldn't eat. So my wife was working at a hotel. She would eat in the cafeteria there. I would eat whatever muffins we yeah. marked down for the day. And so that we could afford the Similac formula for my son. And right. so I thought, I, I'm doing something wrong, clearly. Most men, they don't live like this. Mm-hmm. They, can, they go to work. They bring home a paycheck. Their wife either works or she doesn't. She brings home a paycheck or she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Bills are paid. Food is bought. Some money is saved. Maybe a vacation every year. And that's how things are supposed to go. And I couldn't do that consistently. Mm-hmm. So I was doing something wrong. And it goes back to the very first thing that we were talking about. Somehow, some way, I'll figure this out and I'll mm-hmm. make it right. And I couldn't. I couldn't. So I had to give it up. I had to give up the idea of what it meant to be a man. I had to give up my idea of what I thought money was mm-hmm. and what it could do for me, what a career was and what it meant to me as a man and just say, I don't know, but I'll, I'll make this deal with you, whoever or whatever is listening to me right now. If I can sleep indoors in a safe place and my children are safe and when they open the refrigerator there's food there and everyone has warm, clean clothes with no holes in it, I'll do whatever. Gratefully. Right. And two weeks after... I made that deal. I got uh, a job offer on a show. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I have, my story about that is a little less profound. I made the decision to stop stealing music one day <laughs> on iTunes, like because you could get it on Napster or whatever. Uh-huh. And I and I just made that decision. And I bought twenty songs. And later that day, I stepped on a twenty dollar bill. Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. It's not nearly as profound as your story. But it is, it was weird. You know what? I think a dollar is the same thing as a million dollars. That's just my opinion. What exactly do you mean? I think if I treat one dollar the same way that I would treat a million dollars with respect. Yeah. That um, I can have either. So you don't go below it when you like sell the pilot, clearly. Well, again, I'm going to get corny here, but um, I think money is a way to be a service. You know, it's not my money. So, and again, I, that, I know it sounds... Now, that being said, I did buy a, uh, a kit car that I had always... I had a poster of when I was a kid, uh, and then I felt guilty for having it, and I sold it. <laughs> Wait, what's a, a kit car is not the David Hasselhoff car no, that he No, although that kit. would be pretty dope. Yeah. Uh, no, I had a... I, I, I had always wanted a 1967 uh, Shelby 427 Cobra, but they're like $2 million, the real ones. But there are companies that make kit cars of them that are really great and they're fast and they're fun to drive. So this is how alcoholic I am. So I bought the car and I had it for like three weeks. And I was like, man, I don't mind. It fucking seems a little too flashy for me. So I sold it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I really missed that car. So I bought another one like it, mm-hmm. but I couldn't get it smogged out here because there's weird smog regulations in mm-hmm. California. So I sold it. And then like a year later, the guy that I had sold the first car to was like, hey, uh, I'm selling the car. I'll sell it to you for exactly what you sold it to me for. Now, I had gotten a cheap when the economy shit the bed, so I just sold it to him for what I bought it for, mm-hmm. just to pay it forward. And he goes, I'll sell it to you for what you sold it to me for. I was like, oh, that's cool. We'll get the car back. So I had the car for like four or five days, and a guy pulled up to me. He's like, hey, man, I'll give you cash for that car right now. And I go, fucking follow me home, man. <laughs> and I, just, I just like, I don't, I don't think that... Uh, the things that I like are eating when I'm hungry and knowing that my bills are going to be paid and that um, there's ways for me to be of uh, 
you know, I can I can send shirts out all over the world for the podcast for people that are listening, and then get emails like I'm sure you get of like, man, I was really struggling, and you had yeah. Danielle on, and I really, you know, I would forward her the messages that I would get from the yeah. podcast, and just you know, that to me is like, oh, that's where the money should go. That's where yeah. the money should go, you know. So, or you know, doing responsible shit like saving for the kids' college and yeah. saving for retirement and going out for a nice dinner every now and then. But it was never when I surrendered the idea of what money could be or what a career could be and come from it from a service point of view, then my ego's out of it and then I don't need anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, it was just thinking how, how, yeah, I don't know at what impact the guests that I interview on this podcast have on me because you know how information comes in and oh, you yeah. don't know what your subconscious is doing with it. Yeah. So I just had this moment of gratitude. Ah. That happened. <laughs> um, but okay, we gotta we gotta sign off. I, I, okay, we talked before we started recording. You're 13 years sober, is that right? 12, 12 and a half, yeah. 12 and a half. And um, yeah, I mean, what's there to say about that except that it's <laughs> miracles for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I had always felt like I'd never had the rule book. Yeah. You know, and if for whatever reason, it felt like um, once I got sober and I started taking some actions, some suggested direction that uh, originated from a principle-oriented place, you know, just do this. You don't need to know why, you need to know how. Yeah. And I'd always wanted to know why, because unbeknownst to myself... Uh, when I'm going down the why path, there's a lot of great self-rationalization and I can confuse myself and I'm looking, really when I'm, when I'm wondering why, I'm just looking for a reason to not yeah. fill in the blank, to not do, to not, you know. But when you say how, you know, it's like reading a, um, a workout book, right? Mm -hmm. And you read it over and over and over again and you go, I've read this thing a hundred times and I'm still fat. I don't understand. Right. Well, then when you start doing this shit, it says in the book, that's when your life changes. That's when yeah. your body's going to change, yeah. right? So I wanted to apply that same principle to what actions can I take in my life to change my thinking. Yeah. And I never thought that I could do that before. It never, one, it never occurred to me that my thinking might be corrupt. Yeah. That my instincts that it allowed me to survive my entire life might now be doing the exact opposite yeah. of what they should. It's not self-preservation anymore. It's self-destruction. Yeah. And it never occurred to me that that could be the case, which is a profound shift in my understanding of who I was, you know? Yeah, but I wonder if realizing that drinking is like that first, you know, the great solution oh. turned the great destroyer. It was my best friend. I mean, I loved, fucking loved drinking. I'd be drunk right now if I could get away with it. Yeah. I mean, right now, I'd yeah. be drinking if I could. But yeah. it just doesn't work for me anymore. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on. It's so, like, it's such a button, kind of. But a uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Really nice notice. hanging with you. At least I don't lie to you guys. That was a crazy, crazy story. Yeah, that was Mick Betancourt on After Party Pod. And go listen to his podcast. And thank you for listening. See you next time.